I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast dedicated to promoting and preserving the unique heritage and culture of the upper Madawaska Valley. Today, I'm joined by Sean Conway, the host of The Local, one of our four main formats we have here on the Apiango Line, along with the Apiango Readers Theatre, Rural Roots, and Shabine. For those of you who have seen Sean in action as host of The Local at the old Barry's Bay train station over this past year, you know that he's a keen observer of local history in his own right, being as he is an adjunct professor of Ottawa Valley History at St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto. But The Local is not really about the whole of the Ottawa Valley. Rather, it focuses on those sacred places, public events, and legendary characters of the upper Madawaska Valley, and especially upon those that still resonate in the local history, if not folklore, of our area. And no story gets more attention and outside interest than those curious legends still heard in these parts that are associated with the local makers of illicit liquor. In a word, moonshine has long been part of upper Madawaska Valley folklore. Well, today, we thought we'd try to peel back some of those moonshine myths and get at the truth, and nothing but the truth, of that illicit world of upper Madawaska Valley moonshiners. So let's join Sean as he chats with Joshua C. Blank, or Josh to most of us who know him. He's an Ottawa high school teacher by day, but his real passion is our local history. Indeed, many of you know him as the author of Creating Kajubia, the definitive text on the local Polish Kashub immigrants who settled in the area late in the 1850s. Recently, Josh published another exceedingly interesting article in the University of Illinois' Journal of Polish American Studies entitled, Stills in the Hills. It was so good that it was awarded the Swastak Prize by the Polish American Historical Association. Over to you, Sean. Thank you very much, uh, Kristen. I'm delighted to, to uh, be here today with a, a good friend and a historian of the, uh, the Ottawa Valley, Joshua Blank. Uh, Joshua Blank is a um, product of the uh, Ottawa Valley, grew up in a small community, Barry's Bay, Ontario, which is uh, the heart of our story today, a large uh, Polish Kashub community that was settled in the uh, mid to uh, latter part of the 19th century. Geographically, we're talking about a region that's about 100 and 75 to 200 uh, kilometers northwest of uh, Canada's national capital, Ottawa. For those of you who are used to the old system, that would be uh, about 120 miles uh, west of uh, Canada's capital. Um, Josh is a um, historian who teaches uh, uh, history and humanities in an Ottawa high school um, and has published uh, uh, a number of articles and books about this Polish Kashub community, which is very large in the western part of Renfrew County, the area that we're focused on today. Um, so welcome, Josh. And uh, do you want to just uh, tell us a little more about uh, your family and their connection to uh, the Polish Kashub community that we're going to be discussing today? Uh, thank you, Sean, for this opportunity to come and, and speak about some of my work that I've been writing. And uh, before I, I begin, too, I, um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Algonquin Nation, whose traditional and unceded territory we're gathered upon here today, and I might add that over the years, numerous artifacts have been unearthed on the very island where we are recording today. Uh, myself, I was born here in Barry's Bay, and I grew up 
in town. Uh, both of my families are from the town and the area. Um, we'll know down the road my father's family was from. Um, and all of my ancestors came over from northern Poland between 1848, sorry, 1858, my apologies, and 1907, and settled in this part of the province. Um, I attended high school here in Barry's Bay and, and as well in Peterborough when I was playing hockey, and then moved on to the University of Ottawa, where I graduated with a BA Honours in History and a Bachelor of Education before moving over to Carleton for an MA in History and the PhD in Canadian Studies program. Um, before I did move away to Ottawa, though, I uh, I worked at a, a local beer store here, and it was a it was a very good job for somebody that was in high school and at 18 years of age, you can serve alcohol, yet you cannot consume it yet until you're 19 years of age in the province of Ontario. Uh, but I worked at the beer store here in town uh, at the recommendation of one of my teachers, actually, in high school, Lynn Gatoski, who was uh, hired with the task of finding a summer student who had a head on their shoulders. And, and I must say that working at the beer store for several years alongside uh, Doug Wagner, Francis Olszewski, and and Robert Kurtoski, who uh, unfortunately I was sad to hear uh, passed away recently, um, along with April Feliber, was uh, it was a really enjoyable summer job, and and I really got to shoot the breeze uh, with a lot of the the customers, the repeats that uh, came in for their usual orders. And um, but over the years too, I've heard stories through family history and oral history about uh, moonshining in the hills and and home brewing. And some of my members, some of my ancestors as well, were participants in this trade. So uh, as a natural extension of, of the book that I wrote, Creating Kashubia, I thought, oh, this might be an interesting angle to to pursue. Well, thank you very much, Josh. You, uh, you were very, um, very full in the answer to that opening question. I'm going to return to that uh, summer work experience in what is a modern-day distributor of, uh, of, uh, uh, of liquor, beer, uh, uh, particularly here in Ontario. Uh, you did mention, and I want anyone in the audience who is interested, and I hope many of you will be, our guest today, Joshua Blank, uh, published uh, a very good book with McGill Queen's University Press, in 2016, uh, the title of which book is Creating Kashubia, K-A-S-H-U-B-I-A, Creating Kashubia, published by McGill Queen's Press, 2016. And if you're interested in this topic, and I hope you will be after this, uh, this session with uh, the author of that book, uh, I would highly recommend uh, a very good uh, publication. Josh, let's, let's start by uh, talking about uh, the Kashubs, the, the Polish emigrants to um, the Ottawa Valley, as you say, most of whom came between 1858 uh, and the early part of the 20th century. Who were these Polish immigrants, uh, the Kashubs? Uh, why did they come? Uh, tell us a little bit about their, uh, you know, their, their economic and cultural characteristics. Most of them who arrived were, were poor peasants that worked on manor farms um, in the northern part of occupied Poland that was run by the, the Prussian government. Um, and nowadays you might call it a regional or ethno-linguistic group. Um, and until the 1890s and 1900s, uh, most thought themselves as, as Polish, but then new regional movements started to take place where the, the Kashub label took over and they started to examine uh, differences in speech, differences in, in customs. Uh, but nonetheless, between 1858 and, and 1907, uh, waves of families came over and they came for different reasons. And in my book, I, I separated them into two waves and 
sometimes in historical memory, they get lumped into one wave and, and reasons for one wave get pushed back into the other and are a little anachronistic. But nonetheless, they, they left for several reasons. And I divided them into two groups, uh, pre-Bismarckian and Bismarckian, uh, denoting the, uh, the ruler at the time. And before Bismarck came to power, a lot of the reasons they, they left for were, were the following. Poverty, there were rapid increases in population, along with the continued parcellation of land. So if they, if they were fortunate enough to own a small portion of land, uh, with the next generation, they would have to subdivide it even further. And oftentimes that didn't mean for enough crop space to provide nourishment for the families. At the time, many Polish landlords also mismanaged their, their estates and they were sold off to German investors, German farmers. Um, and also, one of the things I found when I was researching my book was the climate uh, changed during the 1850s. And there were several years in the 1850s, uh, the areas in which this, this group left from, uh, there were droughts. They received anywhere from 50 to 60% of the population, they, uh, sorry, the precipitation that they normally would have in a regular year. So poverty combined with overpopulation combined with a drought was enough to push a lot of these people out. Now, you mentioned Bismarck, just for our audience. We're talking about Otto von Bismarck, the consolidator of what became modern Germany. Clearly, uh, these people uh, fell under the sway and the influence of, uh, of, the, of the German government at the time, correct? Yes, and, and if they left after Bismarck uh, rose to power, uh, some of the same factors applied, but also now they heard from their local parish priests about the war that was going on between Bismarck and the Catholic Church, trying to consolidate the Catholic Church's power within the land, and Bismarck trying to impose a state and state apparatus on the territory previously governed by landlords and, and the church. And so you had the added notion that my religion is being persecuted against, my language is being persecuted against, and this was another, these were several factors which led even more to come and emigrate during this period. So you mentioned, and people who know this population uh, locally know that it is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. Uh, uh, so the persecution that you speak of was uh, an anti-Catholic persecution uh, being led by the authorities at the time? Exactly. It was a religious war. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the peasants on the lower level were the ones affected by uh, jailing of priests, by... Uh, sanctioning of priests who couldn't necessarily supervise over religious school instruction anymore. And so it was a, although it was a higher level fight between Bismarck and the Catholic Church, the ones who really felt the brunt of it were those, uh, the peasants at the, uh, the micro level uh, who might not have a parish priest uh, in their church because he didn't pass the requisite state examinations um, as outlined by the Prussian state. Now, given that we're going to be talking at some length today about the question of liquor in 19th century Canada, tell us a little bit about the cultural norms that these Polish peasants that you've described would have had uh, around both the consumption of what I will broadly call liquor uh, and uh, as your article that, again, I haven't mentioned specifically, uh, but I would highly recommend to our listening audience today, and I think we're going to make this available for, give you at least the link to an article that uh, our guest today has published uh, 
in very recent times, spring 2019, in the Polish-American Studies Journal, an article entitled Stills in the Hills, Moonshine Memories from Around Canada's First Polish Kashub Community. What were the cultural uh, norms for uh, Polish Kashubian uh, peasants in uh, mid-19th century um, Europe that they would have uh, come to... um, um, just live with and would have brought with them to uh, the frontier of the Ottawa River Valley uh, in the late 1850s? Well, even though they rarely traveled beyond their own local village, the grain they harvested on the estates that they worked was vital in the global grain trade. And there was a surplus of that. And and with this surplus of grains, over the centuries, various Polish and, and Russian monks experimented and tried to make elixirs with curative powers, uh, sedatives or liniments. And during these experiments, vodka was created. And while some Poles argue that it was made as early as the 11th century, nonetheless, by the 16th century, there were at least 72 types of herbal vodka in the territory known as Poland. And these experiments morphed into an established vodka industry and and by the 17th century there were numerous distillers across the land Um, and primarily it was made from grains but then uh, when Frederick the Great introduced the the potato to a lot of manor farms around the 1760s the production rose dramatically and alcohol started to be produced from potatoes instead of grains. And in the south in Galicia, where several families also immigrated and settled in western Renfrew County, where we are today, the vodka industry was burgeoning in that region as well. In the north, the researcher and ethnologist Friedrich Lorenz noted that uh, potatoes were the staple, not only in the diet, but when producing alcohol as well. Uh, Schnapps was popular among the fishing villages in the north and the inland uh, Kashubians as well. And a type of juniper vodka, vodka that they would add juniper berries to, uh, Zin, became popular around 1850s, including at the local tavern in their village as well. In these taverns, people met for business transactions. They met to settle on dowries, uh, business ventures, and oftentimes a deal was struck with a handshake and a shot of vodka. And the towns and the villages that they left, there were numerous karchmi, which are taverns. And in the, in the establishment of Viele, it had two for around a thousand people. And Lipush had about three, sorry, had three for about 700 people. Kalish had two for approximately 700 people. Uh, consumption was just a part of their culture. It was a necessary part of socializing and it was a symbol of hospitality. These taverns became multi-purpose centers, and separate from the public sphere, the uh, homemade the inclusion of homemade liquor was a part of many different rites of passage, and associated with many different social and religious events, whether they be baptisms, whether they be weddings, um, or whether they be any sort of. Well, that's very good. Now you mentioned uh, the consumption of vodka. But your article, and I just wanted to get you, before we go too much further, to describe how these peasants made um, the the liquor, the vodka, uh, because your article is quite detailed in terms of uh, how they made it and how some of the the ways they made it in the old country changed uh, by the time they were ready to emigrate. 
So I'm not going to provide you with an exact recipe. You can go on the uh, <laughs> you can go on the internet and find one nowadays. Uh, but basically, it started out with uh, grains, and you're making a mash, and then you have yeast of some sort, and and the sugars are converted into alcohol. You 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 heat the liquid to a certain temperature, and then it evaporates, and that uh, that vapor then you put it through a condenser. And you cool it down so that it drips out the other end of a spigot uh, or a tube into a vessel, a container, and that vessel or container will then hold your finished product. Uh, Vodka, whiskey, moonshine, whatever you want to call it. And different ingredients can be added along the way to give it different flavorings. And one of the recipes without measurements that I came across said that peas added to it gave it a good flavor and gave it a clear color but there were other things that you could add in the process to flavor it accordingly and from what I understand there was a few different flavorings among some producers Uh, there was one north of Barry's Bay and one in Kalu that had distinct differences in taste or so some old timers told me as I wasn't around to sample it but um, you know depending on your taste you would go to your regular supplier um, depending on which batch you liked. So again the point I want to make is that for the average peasant family in Poland uh, or Galicia at the time of emigration in the mid-19th century, there was not only a, a, a widespread uh, consumption of, of vodka uh, for, in some cases, purely medicinal purposes, according to your article, uh, and the local culture, but there was also the ability to manufacture at home or on your part of a, an estate uh, this particular um, alcoholic beverage. That's correct. Yeah, and it's a fairly stable product if made correctly. And then, uh, if you make it incorrectly, the heads or the tails, so the beginning and the end of that batch, you have to throw away because there are elements in there that could render you blind or very sick. Um, and so, if you knew what you were doing, you, you get those tossed away. But it was a stable product in that you could you could have it in a jar, you could hide it away for months on end, and you could have your supply for later on or for your regular customers. Okay. Well, you've done a very good job of establishing for our audience because uh, I just wanted to set the table that before these people emigrated to Canada in the mid-19th century, uh, they were quite familiar with uh, with alcohol. Uh, that's not a surprise. But in fact, in most cases, they had the ability and the habit of manufacturing for home consumption, home brew. Now, they come in large numbers in the mid to late 19th century to the Ottawa Valley, uh, which was a, uh, a lumber timber frontier known for a number of things, not the least of which was a pretty um, 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 high level of interest in consuming um, alcoholic beverages. Uh, the Ontario of the late 19th century was uh, a place by any and all of the historical literature where there was a very considerable amount of alcoholic consumption across the land. Uh, and more about that later. So tell us a little bit about the shanty culture. Your article um, about uh, moonshine and those will know hills talks about the shanty culture of the Ottawa River Valley in, in the period of time when these Polish Kashubian emigres arrive in the will know hills. What do you mean by the shanty cult- culture and what were some of the characteristics? Uh, because you, are, you detail it quite, quite well in your article. Well, the, the term shantyman was a, a 19th century it's catch-all term uh, for forestry workers who lived away from home during the fall and the winter, and they often were housed in a building called a shanty, and this shanty would 
has anywhere from 50 to, you know, 100 to 150 shantymen, depending on how big the lumber camp was. And this group of people carried with them a reputation. And this reputation was one for drinking and fighting. They worked hard, but they also partied hard. And what the public saw and heard about these people were they were men that came out of the bush in the springtime. They were looking for a drink and a fight, sometimes a woman. And they were men who would throw away their whole winter's pay in a short, hectic spree. And by 1872, one newspaper article said that as many as 200 shantymen were ferried up the Opiongo line to camps every day in the fall. And so you had a sizable number of these men away from home in a distant location in the bush. There were bans on alcohol in these lumber camps, but it was snuck in and it was a currency that was used. My grandfather remembered working in some of the lumber camps and he would, if he, if he could, bring money into the lumber camps because people would sign over their paychecks to him. And he would give them cash so that they could buy booze, whether it was on a weekend trip out or within the camp. And so one of my grandfathers, in addition to the wages he earned at the lumber camp, also came out in the springtime with some paychecks from people who were more than willing to squander away their paycheck for a weekend rip. And let me just say to the listening audience, if you're not familiar with the the, the Ottawa River timber trade of the 19th century. It was, as our guest has pointed out, um, very much a male world. Uh, Imagine hundreds of people uh, walking um, hundreds of miles, uh, in some cases, up colonization roads, leaving their families, their spouses uh, in villages, in some cases in, in towns like Pembroke, cities like Ottawa, and living together, these men in, in shanty camps uh, all winter long, three, four months. Uh, so, yes, you certainly have a, you've got a very masculine world, uh, a lot of uh, so- solitary confinement in some ways, uh, uh, although they were together in these, these shanties. Uh, so liquor in that kind of an environment could certainly be, as it was, a, a pretty explosive tonic. Uh, what, just to help us understand, so let's say I'm walking up the colonization road. I'm one of... Uh, uh, and I'm not even now talking about the Polish uh, Kashubian community, the the earlier Scottish, Irish, American, uh, Yankee, uh, French, uh, Canadian uh, uh, actors in this lumber trade. What constituted legalized drinking, uh, let us say, on the Opiongo Road? In your article, you talk about uh, places like the uh, the Brudenell Hotel and, and a variety of other stopping places, which were kind of a bed and breakfast for a, a rather primitive version of a bed and breakfast uh, in an earlier time with the availability of liquor. How liquor was available? What Were there very many rules uh, around its consumption in these places like the Brudenell Hotel? Well, if you wanted to legally sell uh, a beverage to people passing by, you had to apply for a provincial license, a government license in order to do so. And this license was a way of of getting tax money, but not uh, not only that, a way of regulating the products which were sold. Now, along the Opiongo line, you're far from prying eyes. And so even if you did have a license to legally sell beer or a form of whiskey that is uh, somewhat uh, watered down, as the province would have wanted it at the time, um, there were hardly any inspectors that, that came by on a, on a frequent basis to, to judge what you were, what you were selling. But uh, a lot of places didn't even bother to obtain a government license. And in doing so, they just tried to capitalize 
on all these shantymen going by. And hey, if they could sell some of their homebrew and earn a few extra bucks uh, as they toiled away on their meager farms in the hills and the in the rocky Canadian Shield, then uh, many saw it as as just another way of survival. Um, and so you had legal drinking establishments, and then you had illegal ones. And um, but you're making a, an important point here for something I want to discuss with you shortly, and that is uh, this is the frontier. Uh, this is a rapidly developing frontier, but the forces of law and order are not just around the corner uh, as they are now with a local um, uh, OPP and Ontario Provincial Police um, um, a force that uh, is not very far away and is a pretty evident presence. Uh, you tell a great story in your article, Josh, about uh, one of the hotel keepers who, uh, and he wouldn't have been the only one, who ran a, a, a horse drawn taxi service, which just happened to be uh, very well positioned as a, an early warning system uh, that a liquor inspector might be on his way to West Renfrew from a neighboring town like Pembroke or Renfrew. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, you hit on a really good point, Sean, and that is local allegiances were stronger than an allegiance towards the law in many cases. And the closest inspectors, as you mentioned, were 100 kilometers away in Renfrew or Pembroke. And and if you look at the region nowadays, and even as people drive here and, and through Algonquin Park, Highway 60 didn't exist until the late 1930s. And so you had to take a train into any of these settlements. And if you're a liquor inspector, you also have to hire a, a team of horses with a wagon or a sleigh to get to these remote locations that you're supposed to investigate. And so you need to arrange that in advance. And it just so happened that in Wilno, the owner of the Exchange Hotel, Frank Schulist, was also the one who they hired frequently to take them out to these rural areas to investigate possible stills and crocs of mash. And uh, more often than not, local historical memory says that um, by the time these inspectors showed up at the farms, uh, there was nothing for them to find. So that was the price to pay when you were dealing with the Polish Kashubs. There was an early warning system, as it were, one of the other uh, features of, of your uh, research and, and your writing um, um, picks up on a theme that appeared in one of the, the local newspapers, the, uh, which would have been the most important newspaper for people living in the Barry's Bay Wilno area in the early part of the 20th century, the Eganville Leader. The headline read in the Eganville Leader, uh, Wicked Wilno Moonshine was the headline. Wicked Wilno Moonshine. Um, and you pick up on this in your article. What uh, for for the innocent listening to this uh, broadcast? Uh, uh, what does the word "wicked" convey there? Because it does speak to a real issue with uh, home brewed alcohol. It wasn't always of equal quality or safety. And besides being, well, trying to become a, an alliteration, the term "wicked" also denotes something else. It, it shows that the editors. Uh, of papers such as the Eganville Leader and the Renfrew Mercury uh, were in fact in the temperance movement and were often prohibitionists. And so you see in certain articles involving liquor, definite adjective use and inflammatory statement use uh, showing that they're, they're biased. Uh, now, I, I must say that the reporting on some of these events is fairly neutral to a point. And then, of course, there's always a, a few statements, which if you read correctly, you can tell the, the newspaper's stance 
um, in regards to some of these uh, instances. And the the one in particular that you mentioned, Sean, Wicked Will No Moonshine, it was in 1922, and it was a story detailing the apprehension and the prosecution of several people, Albert Tomczyk, Frank Stamplikowski, Frank Yantha, as well as Antoine Burkat. And the story noted that the courtroom for these trials was packed, and spectators flowed over into the corridors. And I quote here from the article, The crowd received an object lesson in modern methods of manufacturing moonshine whiskey. The method of manufacture was fearful and wonderful. And this statement here makes me wonder if the reporter was actually a little bit fascinated by this. And if you read between the lines, were these people here to hear the events of these cases? Or were they here to hear about good recipes and how to produce some? Well, let me play devil's advocate, because you're absolutely right. The newspapers, not all of them, but many of them in 19th century Canada, especially in English Canada, in anglo uh, English Canada, I should add, um, that uh, the, the concern was, among other things, that, uh, that uh, alcohol uh, was, was dangerous because in an industrial society, unlike a purely agricultural society, you could cause a lot of hardship and physical danger to uh, people who consumed alcohol in excess. But, but the point I guess I want to make here is, and I thought you would go there, but you'd be very judicious. I think that those summer months in the beer stores made you, uh, uh, you know, uh, more careful on this. But there was a widespread understanding that not all alcohol was safe to drink. Some of these home brews were killing people. And your article talks about cases where uh, people were poisoned by bad, bad, bad quality of alcohol. How, uh, how widespread was that as far as you could tell from, from your research? So you jumped in just before I was about to say <laughs> uh, that this article, it actually outlined a recipe that was, that was made by one of the, uh, the accused and how somebody else tried to replicate it and passed out and nearly went blind because of it. So, um, you know, even though you could produce it, it didn't mean that it was safe. Um, it was a volatile substance. Again, like I said before, if you didn't get rid of the heads and tails and depending on what you added to it in the process, uh, you could make a very potent elixir that could render you blind or very ill and also cause death. Um, and, and this article, the Wicked Wilma Moonshine article, after commenting on how this recipe had gone awry, uh, has this very poignant statement. And, and it states that the result of indulgence in that brand of beverage was, however, so disastrous that a man possessed of a modicum of caution will abstain from this venture. And so a warning to their readers, while this might seem fanciful and fearful and wonderful and, and, and amazing and, and intoxicating, there is danger. And anybody who has any sense of themselves shouldn't partake in this. Let others do that. Well, this might be a good point to, to take a, a short break. Uh, after all, uh, too much of a diet of uh, wicked will-no-moonshine uh, <laughs> might just destabilize uh, a, social as well as an equ- a social as well as a physical equilibrium. So stand by. We'll be back very shortly. Now might be a good time to mention that, due to the pandemic, we're not able to record these conversations with Sean and his guests, such as Josh Blank, in front of a live audience at present. So we'll be doing them in the field, as it were. This particular conversation was recorded on Mask Island in Barry's Bay in a screened-in sunroom, which might explain some of the sounds you're hearing of passing speedboats, 
if not one rather opinionated squirrel who wanted to get his two cents worth of commentary in every so often. With that said, it's time now to rejoin the host of The Local, Sean Conway, and his guest today, Josh Blank, author of Stills in the Hills, an award-winning article about Polish cashew moonshiners in the upper Madawaska Valley back in the late 19th and early of 20th centuries. Welcome back. My guest uh, for this program is Joshua Blank, historian of the Polish Kashubian community here in the uh, Ottawa Valley. Josh, we were talking just before the break about moonshine, wicked will no moonshine. Uh, where does the word moonshine come from? What, uh, what, uh, what explains uh, a, uh, such a colorful word to describe such a, uh, su- such a substance? Well, it definitely predates um, European settlement to this region. Uh, the etymology of it, it dates back to the 1700s in the United States and was used first to describe a lot of illegal activities done at night by moonshine. And then as the 1800s rolled around, it became applied more so to the illegal production of spirits and liquor uh, as done at night because uh, you couldn't during the day. And if you needed to burn something and put smoke up in the air, um, it was easier done at night because people couldn't see it uh, as it was dark outside. So the original term moonshine became applied to the illicit production of, uh, of a spirit whether it be a vodka-based spirit or a whiskey-based spirit um, in the 1800s. Before we get to the um, crackdown on both the manufacture and the consumption of alcohol in uh, Canada and in Ontario in the late 19th century, um, I want to come back to something you mentioned uh, earlier, and that is what I will describe liquor as currency, both as a social currency and as a hard currency. Your article uh, is very good at describing uh, how in the the Polish Kashubian culture, but not only there, uh, liquor was uh, probably one of the most obvious manifestations of hospitality. Uh, Explain how that worked in the the Polish community, because if you've got any kind of uh, experience with the Polish community, certainly in, in West Renfrew County, one of the areas that would come immediately to mind is the wedding. Um, indeed, the wedding was a was an instance where where liquor was flowing freely. But I, I really do like the labels you give of soft or social currency and, and hard currency. And if I uh, if I would have heard of them before I wrote this article, I actually would have thrown them in there. So so uh, <laughs> excellent terminology, Sean. And as a hard currency, um, work bees were frequently held. Um, among families and across townships in the region, uh, especially if equipment was involved, when bringing in a harvest or planting or perhaps even digging up some stones and making stone fences. Or rebuilding a barn that may have been blown down in a windstorm. Indeed, definitely. And and it was where neighbors completed a major work project together. And you needed the help of the community. You couldn't necessarily do it within the family unit itself. And so you had to pay these workers somehow. And if you're operating a farm, chances are you're using other forms of currency and paying people, whether it be with crops uh, or with hospitality. And one of my grandmothers remembers as a young girl in the 1930s and early 1940s, oftentimes making sandwiches and soup and bringing them out to workers in the field that they were there for a work bee for lunchtime. Uh, But oftentimes uh, throughout the day, perhaps to get workers to keep on working uh, and at night as a reward, uh, there was booze involved. 
And uh, one, uh, actually two, uh, two people, a local couple that were recorded in oral history interview years ago, um, Michael Romleski and Stella Coolis, uh, remembered some of these work bees quite fondly. And, and they said that after the work was done for the day, people would often dance all night there. They would hold a party, maybe drink some of that home brew. And they remembered it, it used to be brought out in the fields as well in a, in a pail and, and with a dipper. And you would go up and take a scoop and be in spree is what we used to call it, according to Stella and Michael. That's a word, by the way, uh, that young people today uh, in uh, the upper Ottawa Valley would rarely have ever used, probably wouldn't even know the meaning of. What What does the word spree, spelled S-P-R-E-E, uh, what does that connote uh, from the uh, the world of the late 19th century? You know, again, you can simplify it as work hard, party hard. You had your work bee, you were busy like bees, you buzzed all about, you got the work done, and then you held a spree. You Somebody had a fiddle, somebody had a musical instrument, or somebody had a voice, something to tap on, to bang on. Uh, you had liquor, and you had fun. And so if you heard your grandmother or grandfather in about 1950 talking about a spree, uh, the modern translation of that is the party. Exactly. You might call it now in rural areas a bush party or a field party, uh, but a party nonetheless. I guess one of the other things about, about homemade liquor or beer or wine, uh, because they did make uh, homemade wine and homemade beer as well, didn't they? Yeah, and uh, there's a, a cookbook uh, put out by the Wilmot Heritage Society which lists a bunch of different recipes for different wines and, and beer and uh, my grandfather, Peter Blank, used to make his own beer quite frequently until uh, he couldn't get the good malts, the good malted barley from the store in Wilno anymore. Um, but it was cheaper than going to buy cases of beer, perhaps at the Exchange Hotel or the Balmoral. Uh, you made it yourself, it was far cheaper, and then because you produced it yourself, you were also happy to give it to people, not only for work, but as a social or a soft currency, as a form of hospitality. And folks showed their thanks and hospitality at events such as weddings and baptisms and, and birthday parties. And as noted earlier, uh, um, the preparations for the wedding, or Vaselli, they've been collected over the years and, and recorded by John M. Glavchewski, who uh, recently retired from teaching music history at Douglas College in uh, British Columbia, and he found that they carried over a lot of these traditions from their homeland, including the, uh, uh, the use of alcohol in the rituals beforehand. So, for example, the beforehand, before the wedding took place, the Drujba, the best man, he made the rounds to houses nearby and, and traveled the remote roads to invite people to the wedding. And he would announce that beer and the sweet stuff would be available in such quantities that it would be, quote, dripping from your chin. End quote. And as a reward for the invite, uh, the household would present the best man with food and drink. But if he erred in rec uh, reciting this lengthy invite, the offer of food and liquor would be withdrawn. Uh, and so you can imagine, of course, as the best man went to visit farm after farm after farm to, to keep the invitation, the recitation proper, uh, he needed to be of quite sound mind. And um, on the night before the wedding, guests would often arrive at the bride's parents' home and they would eat, they would drink, and they would dance oftentimes till morning. And the next day after the wedding meal itself, uh, 
he found that many people said that the wine and the beer and the homemade liquor began to flow from kegs. And then after the wedding, when moving the new couple to their new farm, uh, the men often carrying their belongings and the trunk uh, frequently demanded some liquid cheer for their, for their strenuous efforts. Uh, then on the Sunday following the wedding, neighbors and relatives also gathered at the new home of the bride and the groom. And there they made merry once again with eating, drinking and more dancing. Well, I was saying to you during uh, our break that, uh, and this is for the perhaps interest of some people listening to this podcast, that uh, the famous uh, Canadian artist William Curlick has a series of uh, quite vivid um, paintings about the Polish wedding, most of which paintings are uh, are set in this uh, part of uh, West Renfrew County. Uh, before we move on to the regulation, the crackdown on, on all of these um, alcoholic beverages. Uh, just a question um, about um, this, the bee and spree um, aspect. This frontier culture in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and the early part of the 20th century um, is very much a barter society. There's not a lot of cash. So I, would I be right in saying that uh, uh, beer, homemade beer, homemade vodka uh, was uh, not just an attractive currency, but uh, it was, uh, in many cases, uh, a currency that you could access uh, easier than cold, hard cash, of which there was not a lot around. Indeed, and, and it was even more valuable if it was the good stuff, too. And, and people knew, or they, they thought they knew, who produced the good stuff. And uh, there was one resident, who, uh, Flora Lezinski, who, who remembers that uh, some, some of her family members made the good stuff, and they were, they were frequent customers back and forth. And so, um, yeah, it was especially valuable if, if it was desirable in the community, not just any rut gut stuff. And it sounds from what you found in your research on this topic that uh, the uh, the most uh, widely uh, accessed regulator was word of mouth. Uh, people seemed to know where the good stuff was, who made it, and uh, what to stay away from because it might, in fact, give you a very bad belly ache or much worse. Yeah, you uh, and as a producer, you wanted repeat customers, and so you wanted to make it right and do it right, and so uh, you wanted repeat customers. You didn't want them to go blind. Well, this was obviously getting the attention of the authorities, and by the uh, latter part of the 19th century, certainly as we get into the 1880s and 1890s, by which time most of these Polish Kashubian uh, emigrants are now settled uh, in uh, the upper Ottawa Valley, uh, the government is responding to very strong, widespread um, uh, pressure from churches and from uh, others in the community that something had to be done to regulate uh, this uh, this alcohol problem. Hence, we get temperance and prohibition. From what you could tell uh, in your research, um, uh, how much support was there uh, in areas like West Renfrew, there were lots of churches around, uh, um, and uh, these were God-fearing, church-going people, um, but it seems that um, uh, some churches were more enthusiastic about uh, really applying uh, restrictive um, access to uh, alcoholic beverages than others. What was, what was prohibition in West Renfrew, uh, and how ever did they try to enforce it? Well, before our country existed as, as the Dominion of Canada in 1867, three years prior, the Duncan Act uh, was in effect in Upper and Lower Canada, which is 
present-day Ontario and Quebec. And this allowed any municipality or county uh, to prohibit the sale of alcohol by a majority vote. And so throughout the decades, uh, as you saw the effects of, of alcohol in the home and as evangelical and uh, subscribers to the social gospel started to organize themselves to uh, spread the word about the evils of alcohol, you had a temperance movement that eventually rose up to indeed result in prohibition outright. Um, but as of 1878, the Canada Temperance Act was was in force across the country. It replaced the Duncan Act. Just if I can, can I interrupt? Sure. Because just to highlight something you've said and ask you maybe to comment upon it or we'll come back to it. The Duncan Act uh, had what became a defining principle of any and all government effort to regulate the liquor trade, and it was known as the local option. Uh, you just you just described it, that the, the legislation was uh, permissive. It wasn't mandatory everywhere. Local communities, by virtue of a local vote, a plebiscite, had to basically in most cases, vote yes in sufficient numbers to actually opt into prohibition. If the vote was negative, uh, uh, there was much less of prohibition in those early years, particularly. That's correct. And and so you could have a municipality or a county that would flip-flop back and forth. And so this term, the local option, became known Canada-wide with the Canada Temperance Act. And uh, one example that I came across was actually an article that that Barry Conway sent out um, to the station keepers uh, mailing list, and that was a newspaper article about several local options and the results uh, of a vote in 1916. And and Barry's Bay, the uh, the area here in 1916, 68 voted for prohibition, and 101 voted against. And there were other areas in Ontario at the time which opted for the local option. One example was the town of Carleton Place. And I think if you look at the the cultural makeup and the ethnic makeup of a lot of a lot of these towns, um, there were more Anglo Protestant evangelicals in towns and villages where prohibition was in effect, uh, compared to other localities where where it was not. Um, and in urban centers, the temperance movement attracted a lot of women. And uh, in small towns, too, men were also a part of the temperance movement. Uh, but the Women's Christian Temperance Union was was a driving force. And uh, the aim was to curb the social ills of alcohol. Just to pick up on two elements of what you've just said. Clearly, um, there was a gender split. There were, at least in the leadership of the temperance or prohibition movement, it tended to be more women than men. Um, and secondly, um, some some religions, the Methodists, were much keener about uh, prohibition than uh, elements of the Catholic Church, particularly a Catholic Church where there would be large German, Polish, Irish, or French Canadian uh, populations. So one of the issues I'd like you just to briefly touch upon, and you've already done a part of it, is that prohibition showed a real divide on often, not always, but often on issues of class. Professional men were much more committed to prohibition than a working class guy working in an Ottawa Valley sawmill uh, or lumberyard or a miner in uh, northeastern Ontario. So there was a class issue, it seemed. There was also a variation of religious organizations. There was a gender issue. um, And that seemed to show up. And so certainly church-going Catholic Polish Kashubians wouldn't uh, seem to fit into a natural 
three cheers for prohibition, uh, or I might add Irish Catholic, working class Irish Catholic types, uh, both of which groups were large elements of uh, West Renfrew County. And too, because it's such a part of their their culture. Whether you're coming from Poland or Germany or Ireland, you know the brewing process is and, and consumption is is part of regular life. And you you had several priests who also consume themselves, and so dare they come out against it when they themselves enjoy a beverage as well. But as far as the gender aspect too, I think we have to remember at this time, women did not have the vote in Canada. We're not the social state that we are today. And the ones who saw the effects of alcohol were the mothers and the daughters at home. They were the ones keeping the home front. And in a way, this was a way to voice their concerns. And by gathering together in a collective, um, you, you had more power. You had more, um, more airtime, if you will. And so a lot of people joined temperance movements also because it advanced women's rights, not only did it try and quash the social ills of alcohol, but it was empowering for women as well because men were the prominent ones who were the consumers and who would throw away perhaps the, their paycheck at the tavern or at the local watering hole before they came home from their factory work in, in these urban areas and heaven forbid to come home and, and beat their wives and throw their children around. There's no question, and your article is very good on this, that prohibition uh, uh, was very much a moral crusade specifically aimed at a variety of social, economic, uh, and other ills in society. You mentioned uh, uh, the clergy, and your article is very good. In a very Catholic community like West Renfrew, uh, your article talks about Monsignor Jankowski, Father Bernaski, who uh, seemed to be more effective and in some ways more, but they were more local and much more engaged in trying to enforce good behavior around liquor than the liquor inspector who might arrive once every two or three weeks from Renfrew, Pembroke, or Carlton Place. Yeah, they had they had pastoral and divine power. You know, they had God on their side. So if you wanted eternal damnation, you, uh, you disobey the priest. But, you know, I, I think here you have a situation where if, if you're being told by an evangelical movement that you should not consume any alcohol, but you're not necessarily given any alternatives and you're just told it's for your salvation, uh, many people might question that, especially if they're uh, consuming Irish or, or Polish kashubs. They're thinking, I'm a good Catholic, I'm a good faith-based person, I pray, I am honest in my dealings, I, according to my priest, will be have eternal salvation myself. Uh, Monsignor Jankowski and, and Father Bernaski, his protege, they they took it a little bit one step further. They... They they wanted it regulated, and they certainly clamped down on the long weddings. They only wanted them to take place over the course of a weekend instead of a week. But they also wanted locals to have an outlet for some of this energy. And, okay, fine, we want to curb consumption, but we also have to institute other activities which men can exercise their masculinity. And instead of drinking down uh, four big uh, growlers of, of Rutgott whis- uh, whiskey, um, let, let's – Put a, put a better uh, use for that energy. And so by creating a baseball diamond here in Barry's Bay and by creating uh, baseball teams and competitions against other sports and the annual parish picnic, um, they gave men an outlet for their energy and their masculinity. Uh, no longer were you measured solely by how much you could drink, but maybe how fast you could run, how hard you could throw, or how far you could hit that ball into Kamenskeg Lake, perhaps. And what could you determine from your research uh, how well received were the uh, were the clergy as enforcers of uh, 
the uh, more restrictive uh, liquor control legislation in the world of temperance and prohibition, which really in Ontario would have run from 1890 through to about 1926. Well, it's difficult to determine because, um, I mean, numerous people remarked that you didn't want to be chastised from the pulpit. And if Monsignor Bernaski or Monsignor Yankovsky or Father Wolofsky, and we'll know, uh, you know, called you out from the pulpit uh, on one of his sermons uh, or eyed you up for being hung over in church, uh, you know, there was that added element of, uh, of pastoral power there. Um, you know, the picnics were supposed to be dry. I'm sure, I'm sure alcohol was snuck in, um, but they were meant to be dry, and, and there was no rowdyism about. And the fact that the picnic carried on for you know, several decades, I think, is it, and, and was dry for all those years without any outbursts, is a testament to the effectiveness, at least in that venue. You know, once people are back on their, on their farms and the hills, well, there's no way to control it. You can influence it from the pulpit. But I think that annual celebration, the picnic, uh, it was fairly successful on at least one day of the year in, in, in making alcohol a side story to, to the true purpose of the event. Well, uh, speaking about Monsignor Jankowski, uh, who was the parish priest in Wilno, uh, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, he was a very brave man because uh, not only was he prepared to speak from the pulpit and to speak in his community, but according to your article, in a very famous um, federal by-election in South Renfrew in the, actually the winter of 1912, uh, Monsignor Jankowski went to a political meeting uh, in Renfrew, and by the sound of your article and the press reports that you cite, I think quite uh, accurately, he read the riot act to the political class because uh, I gather, surprise, surprise, that alcohol, which was forbidden by the various uh, election laws, was nonetheless uh, a pretty regular staple uh, in at least federal and provincial elections uh, in uh, this part of the world. Indeed, and he chastised people and said that Liquor was brought up in the last election, and uh, its effect on, on the local community was disastrous. So not only um, should you not be doing this for the vote, but you're not there to pick up the pieces afterwards. And uh, you're not creating a, a, a good situation here by doing so. And uh, th- that took considerable guts, uh, I, I, I would surmise. And knowing the politicians and how the picnic in Barry's Bay was a venue for them to reach all of the local community because they were featured as speakers at the yearly picnic. Um, I'd like to think that they, they actually took his words to heart and maybe didn't cut off all alcohol, but perhaps limited the, uh, the amount that was given out in election time. Now, don't get me wrong for years, liquor and elections have been hand, been there hand in hand. And, John Lair in Western Canada, who writes about Ukrainians, mentions that liquor was about in many, uh, in many instances around election time in Ukrainian settlements out in Western Canada. And you can imagine among the other ethnic communities as well. And uh, I came across an article, it was a 1930 article too, by, uh, by Patty Longren, who was originally of Eganville. And he worked on many campaigns uh, as a scrutineer and for candidates. And, and he recalled the old times about how bribes and payoffs were very common in early elections. And uh, he even remembered uh, an 1860s by-election in North Renfrew when uh, Sir Francis Hinks was trying to assume the portfolio of Minister of Finance at the time. And, and apparently Hinks spent around 65 grand 
uh, before that election to buy all the poultry from farmers in the county from a very good for a very good price of five dollars to seven dollars each and uh, longer ingested that uh, still to this day the farmers are waiting for Hinks to come by and pick up his product that he never did. Well, there's no question, and I uh, just as a brief digression, one of the eminent uh, historians of uh, 19th century Canada and 20th century Canada, Peter Waite, you may know the name. Uh, Peter wrote a wonderful article years ago about uh, aspects of an unVictorian society, Ontario in the late uh, 1890 or in the late 19th century. And one of the examples that he cites to prove just how out of control drinking had gotten, and this has nothing to do with the Polish or Irish or German communities in Renfrew County, he describes what he calls one of the great parliamentary drunks uh, in the days leading up to the big debate in Parliament about the Canada Temperance Act uh, of 1878, so uh, the legislators themselves were uh, obviously reflective of, of, of what, and I, to, be, to be very frank, as we talked about earlier, this was a problem. I mean, uh, one doesn't want to make uh, too much of a, um, of a, a you know, um, an, in, an unbalanced uh, representation of this. Alcohol abuse was a real issue and a real problem. Uh, when I read your article, for example, the uh, violence that you've determined, the, 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 the physical injury, the deaths in, in and around drinking establishments well into the 20th century speaks to um, something that law enforcement agencies and families must have been very concerned about. How the Blueberry Hotel incidents, you quote Charles McNamara talking about uh, coming out of the what is now the Algonquin Park region coming through the hotels of West Renfrew County and uh, had good things to say about their menu and about their, uh, you know, their accommodation, but certainly reported that uh, they had also a reputation in some cases, more than a few, of a lot of Donnybrooks and uh, serious injury. Um, is that uh, a fair representation of what your research indicated as well? I mean, there's no shortage of, uh, of instances where violence was was present and you know I, I don't want to call it any specific people or families because uh, it's not the purpose of this um, but I think it was present with with a lot of families and I think we can if we take a hard look at our our ancestors there's at least several who were hard drinkers in each family but uh, you definitely had uh, around these establishments uh, a heightened level of violence and um, Charles McNamara noted that before his visit a week before uh, a pole had been killed in in one of the parlor rooms, I believe, at the at the Blueberry slash Windsor Hotel um, by a cant hook. And uh, others, there was another gentleman, uh, Kurz was his last name, he was also killed. And, and brawls were frequent um, to the point where MPP Tom Murray in, in the 1930s, I'm assuming he received quite a few complaints from residents of the Barry's Bay area. And, and he stated that if the ball morale was to receive its liquor license for that year, uh, due to the present rowdyism and disorder about in town, that an increased police presence should be had around the hotel. Otherwise, the hotel itself should not be given the license because of the spillover uh, and what happened outside the doors once the patrons left. Um, so it wasn't just on the on the back farms where you know fights between uh, families or neighbors or feuds would happen. It was it was outside drinking establishments and inside drinking establishments. So on that, the, the governments, various governments of uh, all political parties at the Ontario level essentially gave up in the mid to late 1920s trying to enforce the more rigorous prohibition that was intended 
a generation before. From what you can see, and we talked about this earlier, uh, the ambition of prohibition legislation might have been good, but enforcing it in a province as varied as Ontario at the time seemed to be a virtual impossibility. What advice would would you give to uh, later-day regulators? Were there any lessons that jumped out at you in terms of the way the law seemed to be written and what made it so impossible to enforce? I think it had a lot to do with um, distance and remoteness. I mean, these farms were so far off in the hills that to enforce these laws on a population also where drinking was a part of culture and not necessarily do I mean drunkenness. I just mean consuming. Um, if you've come from your homeland or you've grown up in, in Canada and had these traditions ingrained in you, all of a sudden an inspector now that comes and says, this is not allowed anymore. Um, you're going to question why, why is this normal activity all of a sudden not allowed? Because some people in some far off urban center believe so, or some people who hold, uh, evangelical views in a church far away from, you know, the reality of where I live and where I work, uh, you're, you're going to rebel against it. And, and quite early on, I have to give thanks to Mark Wormke and, and, pointing out several references from the Renfrew Mercury to me about travels of liquor inspectors uh, leading up to 1900. And a lot of these inspectors were, were accosted. Um, one inspector, Cook, uh, his, his buggy was smashed, his horse's uh, tail was shaved, and his, uh, also he was accosted and, and beaten uh, to a pulp, the article said, and he barely escaped with his life. Um in several visits between Cumbermere and Brudenell and Barry's Bay. And so uh, enforcement, I can't imagine trying to be a liquor inspector yourself going out into these rural areas. You have little enforcement. You're up against a group who doesn't believe in the, the law that you are set out to in, enact. And uh, you got to have guts to go out there and do that. And, and I think, you know, prohibition, as good intention as it was, it failed. You can't go from 120 down to zero all of a sudden. There has to be some in between. And, and as we saw throughout prohibition, people got it anyways. Uh, you outlawed and there's ways to find it. So, uh, you know, whether it was going to your local doctor to get a prescription for an ailment, whether it was for a religious exemption, um, and, and whether you made it in your bathtub or not, there's always ways around it. And I think, uh, trying to say no all of a sudden and go cold turkey is quite different, difficult for a fairy population. Well, you've really touched on something I want to explore with you a bit, and that is that uh, um, what happened during the war, the, 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 the high watermark of prohibition, certainly in Ontario, was during the First World War. As a, as a War Measures Act, uh, most of the Canadian provinces, certainly Ontario, legislated a complete ban on the consumption and the distribution of uh, most alcoholic substances in 1916 and basically abandoned that policy uh, eight or nine years later. Uh, ultimately, the, 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 the compromise, after all of these decades of trying to find a happy medium, and this will surprise a lot of people listening to this, was something called the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. The establishment in the mid-1920s as a kind of a give-up measure on trying to do too much too rigorously in too many places that were too remote from effective uh, enforcement, Government of Ontario decided that there would be a government monopoly. You would buy your alcohol under certain control conditions at a government store, 
the price would reflect a fair measure of taxation, uh, even beyond what was there beforehand. Uh, and uh, and one of the reasons for that, by the way, is that the the really rigorous prohibition measure of the war, the Great War enacted in 1916, was there was a medical exemption, and the effect of that was to create doctors uh, as, dare I say, liquor liquor distributors, because the the law basically said liquor as liquor is banned, liquor as medicine is allowed, go and get your doctor to write a script, a prescription, and uh, Clearly, um, that caused quite a sensation. There were a lot of older people around here could tell you, if you hear the phrase script, it means um, a prescription for what in many cases was a substantially alcoholic medicine uh, provided to you by your doctor. Um, and um, so one of the other outcomes, though, of both prohibition and even the, the liquor control board idea was it was still control, uh, your article talks about bootleggers. Explain to somebody in 2020 what exactly is a bootlegger and why would anybody need a bootlegger once the government stores were available to sell um, under very controlled circumstances alcoholic beverages. I was joking with one of my friends the other day. I said, you know, when you own a house, you need to have a guy for everything, right? You got to have your roof guy. You got to have your plumber. You got to have your electrician. And if you can stick it to the man and not pay your tax on that service, so you pay in cash to get your electricity, your, your electrical work done, or you pay your, pay your plumber you know, in cash so you don't have to pay tax, all is good, right? And so with the Liquor Control Board, um, you had limited times where you could purchase alcohol from these stores. And if you weren't near a store, well, there was the obstacle of physical distance. And so you needed to have that guy that you called. And so the transportation and delivery of liquor, uh, oftentimes from people who, who produce it themselves, then came into play. And so you had in some small towns like Barry's Bay, people who would uh, operate a taxi service and they would they would ferry people around for legitimate and needed reasons, but also maybe ferry you to your remote uh, farm after you've had too much at one of the drinking establishments or if you needed a delivery on the weekend because you're you're short and you have people coming over and you can't make it out to the local LCBO, well, you know your guy and, and you you uh, drop by their place or you, you put a call into them and all of a sudden there's a uh, there's a delivery on, on your front step. Um, You've said, use the word guy a lot in that answer. I take it, uh, and your article makes this point, that the liquor business, uh, while it wasn't entirely male, was overwhelmingly male. Um what about was there a there was was there a stigma a social stigma attached to bootlegging uh, was there there seemed to be certainly during the high tide of prohibition a stigma associated with alcohol retail or distribution among certain elements of the community particularly the the moralists who felt that this was the work of the devil and anybody who was engaged in the liquor trade was uh, was on the wrong side of uh, a street called virtue. <laughs> of course, at this time, we're talking about a time that had very gendered spheres. And the home sphere and, and the person who would rear children and properly inculcate them with morals and values was the mother in the house. And so, you know, if the husband or the father was off doing their own delinquencies, uh, that was in a way, but not justifiably so in my opinion, excusable. Now, if the mother or the wife or the female of the household was partaking in such a trade, now we have to put into question their own morals and values. And are they fit enough 
to raise children? Are they fit enough to um, pass on proper notions of virtue um, to the next generation? And there were several instances where where this was this was brought up, and um, there was one operator of the Exchange Hotel in Wilno, uh, Ava Schulist, who was originally Ava Sulfur, um, and when her husband passed away. Locally, it was said that government regulations said that a man had to operate the the hotel. That was incorrect. In fact, she could. Uh, But she was often harassed by inspectors and looking through the detailed LCBO reports at the Archives of Ontario in Toronto, I got the sense that they didn't want her operating this hotel. Now, whether it was due to the fact that she chose managers that, that broke the law, that broke the liquor law and served to minors and outside the prescribed times, uh, or because of the fact that she consumed herself while in the establishment. She wasn't necessarily drunk, but she consumed. The LCBO worried that she should not be operating this. And when her son, Tom, took over, the tone of inspection reports changed dramatically. And uh, one of the inspectors and one of the staff of the LCBO actually said that uh, it might be well that Mrs. Shulis sell this to uh, another male of, of Polish lineage. And MPP Murray actually stepped in as well and and told the LCBO that he was eager to see that Mrs. Shulis, who is a good person, uh, gets a fair deal. And the Poles in this town get a fair deal. It's the only place they have to, to stay, to eat to consume and that he stood by that uh, she'd be given a fair deal in this. Uh, However, you can definitely see in the tone of these inspection reports that they felt that she was not capable for whatever reason of running this hotel. Um, Also, LCBO reports and letters from the Balmoral show that they had a separate drinking room for women, which of course there in itself dictates that, okay, although they're they're allowed to be drinking in this establishment, they must be doing it separately from those rowdy men. We don't want them cavorting with perhaps somebody else other than their husband, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, they might become a little promiscuous and, and jump on one of those males, heaven forbid, you know, not the other way around, males jump on a female. But um, one of the staff members at the Ball Morale uh, started refusing uh, to serve several females because he believed that they were neglecting their children at home and they were spending their money on something that they shouldn't have. And that staff member didn't feel like they were justified in, in he didn't want to take their money. Uh, you know, in other words, you should be at home and tending to your children. Um, as good intention as it may well have been, where were their husbands at the same time? So uh, as we wrap this up, I want to ask a couple of questions, but one of them arises out of something you've just said. When you look at government uh, reports, like the reports, as you just mentioned, of the liquor inspectorate in Toronto during the early mid-years of the of the 20th century, was there? did you get any sense that there was um, what I will call a, sens- a, a, a cultural sensitivity to the particular nature of the Polish-Canadian society in and around Wilno, for example, uh, where it came to regulating an important, um, a really important institution that was at the center, along with the church. I mean, the, the, the Wilno Hotel was uh, was where people stayed, where they ate, if they were in town, if they were coming back for a family event and they weren't staying with, with family or relatives. Was the Because, again, one of the concerns you have about something like the regulation of the liquor trade is is it's going to vary from culture to culture. 
and uh, especially a hundred years ago. And I take it from what you tell me, both just now and in the article, that uh, as a result of whatever interventions, uh, the 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 Wilno Hotel was able to carry on uh, as it does to this day. Yeah, there was a definite note of uh, of different ethnic groups being more apt to sell and produce liquor illegally. And in one of the annual reports of the LCBO, it specifically mentioned when it broke down different charges against um, licensed establishments doing illegal activities, unlicensed establishments uh, breaking liquor laws. Uh, it did note that one, uh, several populations more uh, likely to break the law when it comes to brewing illegally and selling illegally were the Polish and Russian populations. Um, it didn't specifically mention in Renford County, but at that time, in the early part of the 20th century, one can guess they were directing their attention towards western Renford County. Now, even though they pointed that out, I, I think it, their efforts were futile. I, I think they realized that it was so far away, they can't actually regulate it, they can't actually change things, and they would spend an enormous amount of money trying to do so. And why do that in some remote area? Let's concentrate on more urban areas, especially because they carry more votes. Well, one of the things that I don't know whether you came across it, but there was a period of time, certainly from about 1890 through to the First World War, 1914, there was a policy in the provincial government that in each electoral district, the government of the day would appoint liquor inspectors. And they were required once a year, I think it was once a year, to travel through the electoral district and make a public report published in the local papers as to how well the inspectors felt the liquor law of whatever kind of nature at the time was being uh, was being honored and respected and I read a number of those reports from you know the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century and let me tell you now mind you you'd read them in the rent for mercury or the Eganville leader the rent for mercury is the one I think about and it was a very very strong prohibitionist running the rent for mercury during this era but you could read that uh, report and get a very clear impression that when you were going through the certain of the more prohibition-friendly districts, they were very near to perfection. And when you got into what I will call cultural minority communities, uh, the report was much, much less positive. Let me be clear. Places like Douglas, Killaloo, Wilno, and Barry's Bay generally reported very badly against uh, a standard that was much higher and better in places like Renfrew and Cobden. And I remember reading those things and thinking, how much of this is a cultural bias? Uh, I'm not just not saying because your research makes plain there was lots of trouble in trying to get an appropriate liquor policy in place and 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 and, and enforced throughout the whole region and country. But uh, this issue of of cultural bias uh, uh, and the other bias I wanted to mention was again the gender bias. Did your uh, research uh, indicate examples? We didn't have very many social service agencies in 1900 like we do today, 120 years later. But women did bear the brunt of a lot of alcohol-related um, abuse and dysfunction and, and just difficulty, including loss of household income. What, what, what did, uh, could you tell us a little more about you know, women uh, and what they had to bear with this um, burden of alcohol in this, particularly this late 19th, early 20th century period? I think you can sum it up in one word. It's uncertainty. You're uncertain about what your husband would be coming home with as far as a paycheck, uh, the condition he'd be coming home in, the temperament, the mood, uh, a lot of uncertainty. And 
Who do you go for? For who do you go to for help? Again, uncertainty. Uh, you might found might find a neighbor. Uh, be able to commiserate with you. You might find some family members that you could that you could chat with, or your local parish priest, which uh, you could confide in and perhaps uh, ask for assistance. Um, it wasn't really until the post World War II era where you saw in rural areas different chapters like Alcoholics Anonymous started to pop up. Uh, until then, it was just reliant on friends, family, uh, and perhaps your parish priest. I know my one of my grandmothers, a frequent guest to her house for social visits, uh, was somebody that experienced uh, several beatings at home on a regular basis by her alcoholic husband. And those visits, not only were they good socially, but they were a refuge for her and to get out of that environment. Um, and, uh, you know, the beatings were less frequent, but I think over the years they, they took their toll. And so you relied on your family, your friends and the parish priest, if you could, if they were nearby. One of the great shames of European settlement in, uh, in, uh, Canada of an earlier time was what, uh, the first settlers, first explorers did in terms of bringing fire water and uh, introducing it to the indigenous population. As you mentioned, uh, we're broadcasting from uh, land that was uh, occupied by indigenous people uh, for millennia before Europeans from England, Scotland, Ireland, Poland, you name it, arrived uh, in the last 250 years. Any indication in this particular research uh, about alcohol? Alcohol was a major um, challenge and difficulty as between the European settlers, the European explorers, and uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, any any indication of any of that in your research on this project that focused on the Upper Ottawa Valley in the the late nineteenth century? Uh, no, not really. Uh, surprisingly, little showed up. And you know, I think as I was scouring through Renfrew Mercury's Algonquin or um, Eganville leaders there was a real lack of coverage on anything indigenous and, and I think it's sad. And so somebody trying to do research on this area would have a really difficult time, I think in doing so. So a last question, we're doing this interview on a sunny Sunday afternoon in August of 2020. We are a few days away from not far from here in downtown Barry's Bay. Uh, the opening of the first, um, uh, um, Retail outlet for um, cannabis, uh, which has been legalized in very recent times in in Canada, and it's been regulated for some time, mostly under the criminal law. Uh, that's been changing somewhat. Uh, so, a last question: uh, as we think about uh, having both a liquor store and a local uh, outlet for uh, for medicinal cannabis and I guess related products, uh, what advice, if any, would you give to people trying to um, think about regulating uh, the marijuana business uh, in the uh, 21st century based on a fair bit of research on governments in an earlier time trying to regulate in a variety of ways, shapes, and forms, not always successful, uh, the uh, alcohol trade. Well, i got to say the legalization of marijuana in, in Canada has provided my, my courses with Lots of grist for the mill. I, I teach grade 10, 20th century history, and where we talk extensively about prohibition. Um, and I teach grade 12, can, Canadian and international law. And, and so these, these issues 
dovetail quite nicely, and we have quite the, quite the discussions on these. And and you know, students that I've I've taught in grade ten history or have taken it from some other teacher, you know, they draw connections to again prohibition and did it work and what did people do? They got around it. Uh, I think the lesson we can learn from prohibition of alcohol is outright bans don't work. Uh, people will do it anyways. And and this idea of social control or the social control thesis comes into play here, where whereby the state attempts to control the behavior of the people for their betterment. And and I think the danger when we have substances that alter our mental states or physical states, um, the danger is we worry about how uh, candidate X and candidate Y and candidate Z will react to this. And, and everybody's different. And so we have to have some standards. Um, you know, beer as a substance was oftentimes more healthy to drink than water for a lot of these Europeans um, because the water was was polluted with bacteria and they could get sick, but it also held nutritional value. Now, here in cannabis, we have a, a substance that not necessarily is a part of our history and our heritage. Uh, nonetheless, it has gained popularity over the last 50, 70 years. Um, and so how far do you go with regulating it? Well, do you ban it? Well, no, people are going to do it anyways. And people did it anyways. And one of the articles I referenced um, in, uh, in my article was a newspaper article where marijuana was found growing not that far away in the, in the, in the bush from an elementary school in Perry's Bay. And I know where that is because we used to venture back uh, running through the woods uh, trying to explore when we were younger. And so people would do it anyways. And, and you know, from a standpoint of taxation, whether you're for or against legalization of cannabis, it's hard to argue with the tax dollars that it brings in. And and I logged on to the Ontario Cannabis Store a couple of days ago, and, and in the first year of legalization, there were $385 million in sales of cannabis in Ontario. And so you take your provincial sales tax portion out of that, and, and that's a good chunk of cash going towards perhaps other social services that would not necessarily exist otherwise. Um, so, you know, people are going to buy, people are going to do it. Uh, do you get some money for it, for some social programs in the process? Um, and, I, and I have to say, teaching in an urban area and teaching teenagers, um, the legalization and, and the centralization with, you know, a provincially run store, it also comes from a harm uh, reduction standpoint too. Uh, you know, if you buy your product at, a, at the OCS, you know that it's, it's a quality product and it's safe in cities now. And my wife works as a, uh, a mental health nurse in the shelters downtown in Ottawa. The stuff marijuana and weed is laced with now in cities is, is ridiculous. It's everything from rat poison to fentanyl and even teenagers teaching teenagers. We have, we have numerous um, in services and we actually have a day, a party smart day where we bring in professionals from different um, different areas, paramedics, pharmacists, and, and we educate students on partying smart. And, you know, it used to be where you knew your dealer, you knew your product. Now you don't. And we're finding cases where people are, are perhaps over, overdosing on fentanyl and opioids, and they thought they were just smoking a joint. And so I think in, in urban areas in Canada, uh, it, it also, it's a harm reduction and it's a health and safety concern, the fact that it's legalized, you know your product, uh, just like moonshine, um, you know, maybe it passed three hands on its way there and maybe it was diluted and mixed with other things to make the product last longer and get more sales. But, um, you know, it was at the risk of the health of people, too. So, um, 
you know, I think there are definite lessons. There are definite uh, dovetails in these two, uh, these two substances. Well, Joshua C. Blank, author of Creating Kashubia and author in the, a recent edition of the Journal of Polish-American Studies, Stills in the Hills, Moonshine Memories in the Wilno Hills. Thank you very much for a very uh, educational and uh, lively account of uh, an important part of the uh, past in, in this part of the world. And what better note to end on than the one you just did, health and safety. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Nazdravia. Well, that was certainly interesting. Our only regret is that we were not able to bring you that conversation as we normally would at the old OANPS railway station in Barry's Bay, complete with a live audience that might have offered up all manner of comments, queries, and additional stories. One can only imagine what we might have heard here today had the COVID-19 pandemic not made such public gatherings impossible for the time being. But for those of you who do have comments, queries, or additional moonshine stories about our locale, please feel free to leave a comment on our podcast site or send them along to the Station Keepers, the sponsor of this show, at spareboard at stationkeepers.com, making that all lowercase. We'll be very happy to add them to the research that the Opiongo line is constantly collecting and cataloging about our very unique local heritage and culture. And for those of you who might like to read Josh Blank's award-winning Stills in the Hills, you might drop by the Madawaska Valley Public Library in Barry's Bay and ask for a copy. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Sean Conway, Josh Blank, and our producer Barry Conway, we here at the Opiongo Line would like to wish you a good day and God bless. <laughs>